following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. At Farmers Insurance, we know a roof can withstand a lot. One exception being an airborne car. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristari, and this is Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action. And we're inviting you to join us every Wednesday in my New York City apartment where we are brought to you by LifeLock. Equifax recently announced a breach of 143 million identities, and you need to take steps to get protection. Be among the millions who trust their identity theft protection to LifeLock. Go to LifeLock.com, use promo code Forbes for 10% off. And joining me today, and I'm very excited about this because I think when, when you hear these stories, you'll find out you, we could be each other. We're like mirrors of each other. And there's a, there are stories behind this that we'll get into is Rena DeSisto. She's the global executive for arts and culture and women's programs at Bank of America. So let me dissect that for you a little bit. I'll break that down. She oversees strategy and execution of the company's art partnerships with nonprofit institutions, which is so cool. And making it even cooler, she oversees the company's global programs to empower women. This is where we clap and say, yay, 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 around the world with training and capital to help them build medium, small businesses to really help move them forward. And to make it even cooler, she's a managing director of the Metropolitan Opera and a member of the British Museum Chairman's Advisory Group. So that's what she does. Now, who is she? And that's what we're going to get into, because when you have arts and women and all of these pieces of this puzzle, who is she that makes her who she what she does? So I'm going to kick it off. Rita. First of all, thank you for being here. I know it's busy for you. It's a busy time. Um, the fall, but thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. And we're going to have fun. I mean, this is going to be great okay. fun as we're smiling at each other. Okay. She's like, okay, we're going to have fun. So I'm going to kick it off with a mentoring moment that is a combo of an update on my mom and a mentoring moment. So I talk about my mom a lot. She's 90 and I haven't talked about her recently. So I've been getting emails. People have been asking me, you know, how's your mom? Do we want to hear about your mom? She's become like a little celebrity in her own way. She lives in this tiny little town outside of Pittsburgh, not in assisted living because she says assisted living is for old people, <laughs> to which I'm always like, mom, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but you qualify. Okay. But she doesn't think so. So that's really good. And so she calls me a couple of weeks ago and says, I went shopping today with my friend Mary Ann. And yesterday, Mary Ann came over and she said she bought two bathing suits. Now, Mary Ann's in her 70s, and there's a swimming pool at my mom's apartment building. My mom does not swim. She almost drowned when she was little, and she has not gone near a pool since then. Okay. So, Mary Ann and I went shopping for a bathing suit for me. And I'm sitting there like I'm sure his eyes wide open as she's talking to me. And I'm like, OK. And she said, and I got the most beautiful bathing suit, honey. It's blue and it kind of has a pattern. But do you know what? 
they don't make bathing suits the way they used to. Remember how I used to wear those deep plunging neckline bathing suits? Because she would sit at the pool, but she just wouldn't go in the water, right? And she said, they make them with skirts now, Mm -hmm. which I'm thinking, thank God. (laughs) Thank God. She's like, because I was looking for one. Do you remember how I used to wear those? And I was like, I do, Mom. So then I got a cute little cover-up. The next thing I see is my picture of my mom in the pool, holding on to one of the noodles with one of her friends holding her up as well in her blue bathing suit. The next picture is my mom dancing with the lifeguard. (laughs) (laughs) Which... I have to think if I compose these or not. Everybody I show it to, my mom looks great. I mean, everyone's like, your mom's got great legs for 90. Yeah. So I share that story because a lot of my mom's stories about my mom are she likes red shoes and she lives this life. She's 90 years old. And there's a lot of pieces that aren't going right. There's Alzheimer's setting in. So there's a reality. I don't mean to make this sound like everything is roses. But on those days, and there, there are more days that she's on then she's not on. She just loves life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's that there's so many stories in that one is you're never too old or mm-hmm. you're never too young to jump in the pool. Right. Make sure you've got your safety nets, whatever. It's good to have friends. Yes, exactly. Um, and just to live your life in the moment and whatever fears you had, right. you can overcome them. Right. Um, it's, so I think there's so many messages. But what did you hear in that? In that story. Well, I heard that. I heard that your mom sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> she um, is. <laughs> uh, I suspect that she was a really wonderful mother to have yes. and a positive type of uh, energy around her. Um, but I was also thinking about the fact that as you get older, there are things that go wrong, but it's also very freeing in some ways. Um, and you start to, you really know who you are by then, God knows. And uh, you know what you're what's important to you and you know, you know how you feel about things and you're not taking any guff from anybody mm-hmm. anymore and all of those other things that I think as we're growing up and growing older, we maybe pay a little too much attention to. My husband loves getting older. We're, uh, he's two years older than me. I'm 63. Um, he's 65 and he loves getting older. Mm-hmm. And and I get that. I do love getting older for that piece of it. Right. I just hate that my hair gets gray. I mean, it's like I got to get it colored more often, right. the wrinkles, all of the. I don't even mind the wrinkles and stuff so much. That kind of, that, that I really don't care about well, that they, much. They've come up with such great stuff now to actually take care of that to some degree right. anyway, right? So we don't have to age. This is a Nora Afron thing, right? We don't have to age the way people used to age right. necessarily. Um, but the maintenance, my um, mother-in-law used to say, if you think it's hard, like when I would get, when I was working at USA Today, and those were in the days of the suits, and but in, in your oh, world, yeah. right, it still is that, right? Yeah, except like, I, I get around it, but anyway. Yeah. And makeup, and <laughs> she would say, "Honey, it only gets harder when you get older." <laughs> it's oh, like, yeah. Um, but I so I've given up makeup. I've done wear much makeup because I just don't want it to be harder. But I do agree that aging has this big plus that you're able hopefully to be smarter, Mm -hmm. to be able to say, this is what's important to me. Mm -hmm. And as I talk about on the show a lot, that doesn't mean I have all the answers. I still get lost in my own way that you need to do those checks of, you know what, this is what's really important to me. Like it doesn't just come with age, but with age for me, at least what comes is that being able to stop Mm -hmm. and say, hold on, do I really want to do this? Right. And, or is it just FOMO? Is it fear of missing out? Right. And I'm kind of over that. Or guilt. Exactly. Yes. The kind of guilt of, you know, are, are people expecting me to do this? And am I going to be letting people down? 
you have to pick and choose who you're going to let down, right? Right. And do you have a hard let... time letting people, quote unquote, letting people down? No, I don't. I, I don't. I try not to let my close friends and family down. That is something I don't want to do, um, as long as they have reasonable expectations. <laughs> um, but things beyond that, um, no, no. I care much less and less as I get older about what people think of me. It's very freeing. And when you were younger, did oh, you? It's, a, it's, you know, a preoccupation, right? Particularly when you're a teenager. If, if there's any time you worry about what people think of you, it's when you're a teenager. And then you spend most of the rest of your life trying to grow out of that. Um, and then ultimately, hopefully, you get to a point where you realize it doesn't matter that much. And you spend a lot of energy on something that has no return on investment. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I tell a story when I first started the podcast that I would listen to all the great podcasts and people, the ones that people would say, this is a great podcast. And my first podcast recording, I just remember every, everybody's voice in my head. Mm-hmm. And all I kept thinking is like, so-and-so is going to be listening. So I want to make sure I say this and right. so-and-so is going to be listening. So I want to make sure that I say it this way because, she, and then finally it was like, my head was spinning. Right. And I was like, okay, stop. I mean, I really had to say to myself in the middle of the podcast, like to myself, stop, just be you. Right. Forget about all and of that. And trust yourself. Right. Right? Trust yourself. And, um, and that's the other thing, too. I think in, in work, in my career, there have been so many times where I've uh, stressed out about being prepared for something, for instance, or making sure that I was going to do you know, a good job at something, et cetera, uh, particularly in, when in front of people. And then you get to the point where you say, you know what, even if this doesn't go as well as I would want it to, sun's going to come up tomorrow. <laughs> right. And nobody knows what you may have forgotten to say. Right. Well, right? you're on your own worst enemy, too. Right. I and mean, you and I were talking earlier about uh, the fact that, that I don't have a lot of pictures to share with you uh, because I don't like to have my picture taken because I look at it with, you know, a microscope, whereas other people probably could care less and they don't. But that's, I think, what we tend to do to ourselves. Um I still don't like to have my picture taken. Though. Yeah, me either. But, you know, I think when we do that, we miss out on some of the moments to remember. Like when I was just in Montauk with my daughter and we took these pictures and um, it's the energy in the photo. It's not so much my face. You know, I, at first I was well, looking yeah, for the photo the original, that I look it's good. It's not about you. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> and then I thought... I really don't care how I look. What is the photo that shows what we were feeling in that moment? And it's not about, you know, am I getting my best angle? Right. It's versus what was just going on? Exactly. And my sister, actually, I spent some time with my sister recently, and we were going through um, photos of family photos. Um, actually, my father passed away a year ago in June at 96 years old. I don't think I'm ever going to get over that, by the way. In any event, um, she and I were going through all these pictures that my cousin had given us, and we came across one of my mother. And it was we realized we have so few pictures of my mother, and it's because she did not want a picture taken. You know, so I, I try to think about that too. It's not necessarily about me. It's maybe about some other people who, long after I'm gone, would like to see me in a picture and remember a moment. Right. And you were saying about your dad, 96, that you'll you won't get over it. Yeah, I mean. Um, this kind of goes to the career question and all of that, but my mother passed away when I was 20 years old, and um, my father was only 59 uh, at the time. And she, um, 
was his life and his family was his life. And he was never interested in dating anybody after that. So I'd go into his house and there'd be a casserole dish there. And I'd say, what is that? You know, where'd that come from? And he'd say, well, this woman down the street brought me a lasagna. You know, there's a sponge cake in the refrigerator, all this. So there was no shortage of women kind of, you know, checking him out and, and ready to help out. But my sister and I knew my father well enough to know that that was not the road he was going to go down. And so we made, we did what we could to make his life as good as it could be, given the fact that he had lost my mother at such a young age. Um, and we spent the rest of our lives doing that. I don't regret one thing I did. I think when you lose someone, you only regret maybe what you didn't do. Um, so there's some advice there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't regret how I spent my time or anything like that. But through all of that, you develop a closeness um, that is a combination of father-daughter, you know, and, and, and other things, frankly, caretaker, um, that that when it's gone, it's kind of like your right arm is, is, is cut off. So... Um, you know, many, many years with him in that in that way. And the other thing, too, is I never, you know, I focused on him and my career and never really carved out the time that maybe I, I could have to make sure that there was a, you know, a, a relationship going on. But I never felt the want of it because I had a full life, you know. Um, I mean, I had men in my life, but nothing that I devoted myself to, I guess, is how I would put it. And now that that's that he's gone, I realize that that's maybe something I need to fix around now. <laughs> but it's never too late. I mean, it's and well to, right. to your point about your mother. It's never right. It's it's never, never you're not that old. Yeah. <laughs> just to clarify that she's young. Yeah. <laughs> not Actually, a millennial young. I but just she's young. Turned, I just turned sixty years old. It's really? Oh my like, God! You don't look it at oh, all. Thank you very much. That's because I never had a, got married. Right. <laughs> there you go. Never got married right. and never had the aggravation of children. Right. I think. Although I do have two nieces who I uh, are very close to, and they call me their second mom, and and uh, we have a great relationship. So I kind of lucked out in that respect. I like to fashion myself as after Auntie Mame and kind of spoil them with outrageous <laughs> experiences, and it's really filled my life with with fullness and love. So that is great. My dad died a few days after 9/11, and it was only a, maybe two years ago when. When I, w- when I could stop crying, when I would right. think about him, um, we get teary-eyed. It was just yeah. like a natural, if I would, if I talked to him about you, I wouldn't. But if I like thought my, in my own thoughts, like if I were sitting at the, on the sofa and thinking about my dad, it, it really up until two years ago, until I would not be like in tears thinking about yeah, how much I, I missed I, him. I cry probably a couple of times, a, sometimes twice a day, sometimes once a week, sometimes three times that week. It right. just, it depends. And I actually have a box of stuff um from right around the period of time when he died and include the prayer cards are in there and some other things you know that i just kind of put in this box i have not been able to bring myself to open it right i i I have the same thing and i have not opened the box ever ever but it's there it's there right and now we're so we know that it so no, I'm but, sitting here with tears in my eyes, right. and Denise is being very sweet. No, no, I'm thinking about it's it's, it's sad when we lose some, when we lose someone we love, and there are young women that you know I know they've lost their mothers to breast cancer, oh. and there you know, we're, we're, there's so much we're losing 
people that we love, no matter how old we are. And so I think it's great that we were able to talk about it and say, I can say the pain goes away. I don't cry anymore, but the loss of my dad will never go away. And when my mother dies, I don't, I can't even begin because the same with you, your dad's 90 was 96. I can't even begin to imagine what that will be like. Right. Because even though you know it's coming. Yes. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. Kind of, uh, it's still just uh, mind right. bending and mind boggling and unfathomable when it does happen. And my advice to everyone is that's for your friends yes, and your family, whoever that friends and family is to you. That's where it really makes a difference right. to be able to have those people around you to support right. you right. and that we, we do make it out. Um, we do make all. it out the other side. Right. I mean, we that, as I said, I lost my mother when I was 20 and right. I never thought I would get over that. Um, and but I don't cry about that right. anymore. I actually, I feel a little guilty about it because I'm so broken up about my father, <laughs> and yet I'm not necessarily crying about my mother. But it just goes to show that there's something about the human spirit where you you, you find your strength yes. and you, you get a... You know, Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. Exactly. Right? Um, so we're going to change course here, and we're going to get... Because I want to hear your mentoring moment. So okay. what is your mentoring moment? Well, I've had some aha moments. I've never had really, I, would, I wouldn't describe myself as ever having a formal mentor. I've had people that I've admired and watched closely, I guess is how I would describe it. Um, I've had people that have created or, or given me opportunities, uh, but I don't know that I've ever had somebody say, okay, I'm going to be your mentor, we're going to meet once a week, and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. It's, it's never been that type of thing. I've always been... Uh, I watch people, I observe people, whether men or women, in, in my career over my lifetime that I've uh, considered to be uh, successful or that I admired some element of how they did things or whatever. And I've taken those lessons and, and you know, used them uh, for myself when appropriate. But nothing really like uh, somebody saying, I want to be a mentor to you. Um, you know, I think for people like me, I was just uh, putting together a care package for my niece who just went off to college at 18 years old. She's going to Furman University in South Carolina. She asked me to send her Oreos with the orange cream. I said, you're going to worry about this 15 pound freshman year thing. She don't worry about it. Anyway, um, you know, I look at somebody like her and I think that she's got the kind of the world is her oyster, but she's got a whole different world ahead of her than I had. Right. Um, I mean, I grew up in a family where my father was the first one in his extended family to graduate high school. Um, my brother was the first one to go to, to college. Um, it was important for the boys to go to college, necessary, in fact. Uh, for the girls, it was a nice to do, not have to do. Um, my niece will often say to me, why do I have to go to college? You, you were successful without, you know, without going, although I didn't eventually go at night. But, you know, you were successful without doing that. And it's, that was then, this is now. And by the way, honey, I had to fight a lot harder than I want you to have to fight. So just get that in your arsenal. It's a tool just like anything else. Um, so in some ways... Um, you know, I've had to depend a lot on myself and whatever my natural mojo is, frankly, um, to kind of get where, where get where I got. And it's, it has served you well. Were, were there, were there are moments in all of that where something has happened, that aha moment where you were able to say this happened and it changed how I saw my life? Yes, yeah, so I'd say that happened several times. Um, but I think when I think back to the beginning, I think of how we grew up. We were baby boomers. 
neighborhoods were filled with kids. You just went out, out the door and you played and you found kids and you organized hide and seek and you organized jump rope and you organized all that stuff. And there was negotiation there and people with leadership skills could kind of, you know, well, no, I'm swinging this end. Right, and, you, you know, rose to the exactly, top of the jump rope chain. Exactly. Um, and I think I was, I was never, you know, the kind of kid that would sit back and let other people dictate my, the direction for me. Um, which is kind of funny because I grew up in such a male-centric household, but apparently that, that matriarchy that is the Italian household manifested in me in some way, right? Um, and then, you know, over the years, uh, as I say, coming from that background, I found myself thrust into these corporate situations with people with very different backgrounds than me. Um, and probably one of the most amusing and meaningful ones was um, I was about 23 years old and I was... Going up to, I worked for the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston at the time um, as an executive assistant, and I was going up to Bretton Woods with my boss um, for a big economic conference. And when I and a colleague went up with him in, in a car, and there was a gentleman who was a, a very important banker um, in Boston, who shall go unnamed, um, but of Brahmin stock, um, very unlike my Italian immigrant background. And uh, this is in the days 35 years ago when bankers were really esteemed as, as community leaders and so forth. Um, anyway, he offered to fly us back in his helicopter rather than having us sit in traffic for four and a half hours. And we, you know, agreed. And that was lovely and very sweet of him. And but this was a long time ago. And so it was a fairly rudimentary helicopter with no facilities and very loud. You couldn't hear yourself think, much less have a conversation. In any event, um, he was reading the Wall Street Journal, um, and my colleague and I were just kind of looking at each other, and all of a sudden I feel him tapping me on the shoulder, and kind of uh, this gentleman, and, and motioning for me to look out the window. I was perplexed, but I did what he said, and as did my colleague who was sitting across from me. So he and my colleague and I had eye contact throughout this whole thing, which was not a good thing because it was we were childish and laughing about the whole thing. Anyway. He, uh, I proceeded, I saw out of the corner of my eye that the, the man took a Tupperware container and, and opened it up and removed a donut, and I was thinking, what, what is he doing? And then it became apparent to me that he was relieving himself in the Tupperware container. Um, had no choice, obviously, probably regretted that he asked these two kids to come with him, um, but it was so kind of him to do so. So it wasn't a question of me judging necessarily, it was just a kind of mind-boggling to me. And so that was my moment of everybody puts their pants on at one, one leg at a time. That was my moment that said no matter how revered, no matter how uh, you know, important someone seems to be, no matter how uh, intimidated you may be, et cetera, everybody's human. Remember that everybody's human and everybody has their moments that they would <laughs> – well, prefer, prefer to forget or that show weaknesses. Or, I wish people could see any, my eyes. It's like the emoji. Yeah, the eyes wide any open. of those kinds of things, you know, and it's just, it's it's what I think of when, and what I what I would often think about when I would be in a situation where I was being feeling very intimidated by someone because of their background or their achievements or what school they went to or any of those kinds of things. Um, very instructive. 
Some people say the thing to do is to, if you're in a room, look around and imagine everybody with, you know, their no, clothes right, off. Or right. Personally, I don't want right. that visual, <laughs> so I've never really right. gone down that road. But um, it's kind of that that type of that type of a thing. Just understand that we're all. And by the way, the person who's using the Tupperware, you know, he's he has his insecure moments too. Don't right. think he doesn't. I, I love this story because I think. I talked to so many young women who are so impressed with titles mm-hmm. and it's, you know, but he or she is blah, 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 blah title. You know, right. it's a EVP They're the management team. And it's just like, but they're just a person. Right. And because someone has chosen not to go that way with their career, or their life doesn't mean that they're stupid and have no value just because they don't Absolutely. have a title. And it plays both ways. I tell people all the time, you know, I was in corporate America most of my life. There are a lot of really smart people. But there are a lot of people who just aren't that smart with big titles, who have right. gotten there because of the right time, the right place, whatever it was, they're related to someone, whatever it is. Um, and they're they're not that smart. So don't right. put everybody on this pedestal of thinking he or she has a title and right. therefore they're better or, than or me. Or went to the school or is, you know, a lawyer or whatever it might happen right. to be. Everybody, they're not better than you. They're just maybe have different skill set or maybe went had a different path right. doesn't mean that they're better than you and I, i've had people work for me that had no degree who i have and particularly women who i have been i think a mentor to and who have gone on to you know achieve success and i've had people work for me with mbas and you know some of those mbas i wouldn't give you 10 cents for in terms of being an employee and, and getting the job done so none of those things is a guarantee of anything I also think, uh, and this is something as I get older, I'm much more impressed by somebody who, in a a corporate environment, which can be tough, manages to still be a nice person than somebody who is powerful or is always trying to be the smartest person in the room. Um, And how have you done that? How have you been able to do that? I, those are the people that I respect, the people that are, um, and that doesn't mean, you know, the, the person who's looking for everybody's opinion and, and all of that, or is trying to be liked, but the people who are just genuinely good people and people who may have a lot of success and make a lot of money and be very senior, and then they need to beat up on the other, you know, uh, lower level people around them. I have no respect for those people. I don't care what they, what they do or where, you know, what they've achieved at that does not, in my view, they have not been a success if that's the kind of person they turned out to be. I'm with you 100%. And did you, how did you get to where you're at? So you have, let, let me break that down a little. So you don't have a college degree, or you, you do now, but you didn't when you started right. out. Exactly. And I don't, I don't have a college degree at, at all. Um, but I am an honorary professor, and I speak at Stanford, so mm-hmm. there. <laughs> so there. So pluck and smart right. counts for a lot. <laughs> right, right. So before we continue the conversation with Rena, let me take a moment to tell you about LifeLock. You've probably heard about the Equifax breach and how it may have impacted roughly 143 million people. They've now added 2.5 million people to that list. And if that's not bad enough... Yahoo announced that their 2013 breach impacted all 3 billion user accounts. That's triple the original estimate. It's scarier than it even sounds. 
because once your personal information has been exposed, it doesn't go away. Identity thieves can buy your info on the dark web for months, even years after a breach. They can use it to commit crimes in your name, even steal from your 401k account. So now is the time to really get protection. And here's why you should sign up for LifeLock today. They use proprietary technology to detect a wide range of identity threats, and they'll alert you if your information is being used. You know, no one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But LifeLock can help you see more than if you're just monitoring your credit. So go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK, use promo code FORBES, that's Forbes, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. Hi, I'm Allie Hilfiger. And I'm Steve Hash. And we're the hosts of Sit-In on Podcast One. Join us as we travel around the world visiting creative people in their homes, studios, and the places they work to discuss their story, process, and basically everything in between. We're sitting down with the biggest names in the world of fashion, art, and music like Tommy Hilfiger, Gigi Hadid, Brian Adams, Martin Lawrence Ballard, and Zana Roberts. Check out new episodes of Sit-In every week exclusively on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or PodcastOne.com. This is Mentoring Moments with Denise Rostari. When you started out, how did you start out? I started out as a secretary. I went to a Catholic parochial high school. My parents sent me there because they wanted me to actually get an education as opposed to go to the public school where it was all about the social experience. And they, I think they were afraid I was going to become a juvenile delinquent, frankly. <laughs> So they sent me there, and I'm glad they hated it at the time. I had to wear this most hideous uniform with an itchy wool skirt. Um, but I'm glad they sent me there because I really did get an education. Um, and then uh, at the end of that, however, I had this boyfriend. Was just, you know, you, you're just dumb when you're a teenager. And then the things that you think are important are not important. And I, I, I was just kind of dragging my feet. I was working at a, as a cashier at a supermarket, and, and you know, I was making pretty good money for a kid my age at the time. And I had no ambition really. I was, you know, anyway. One day I come down summertime. It's probably you know August 30th or something, and my mother's in a panic because I haven't chosen a path. And she's cut out on the table a, an advertisement out of the local newspaper for Hickok Secretarial School. And I looked at it. It was you know go at your own pace and so forth. And I said, okay, I'll do this. You know. She was relieved, but she said, you know, it doesn't mean you have to be, stay a secretary, but these are skills that you'll use, you know, you, you'll have the skill and you'll use it for the rest of your life. It will it will put you in a good position. I don't know that I believed that at the time. I went to secretarial school. I learned how to type up to 120 words a minute on a manual typewriter. So, yes, it was that long ago uh, and took shorthand. And, um, you know, when she said that to me about this will serve you no matter what you end up doing, she couldn't have been more right because fast forward years later, you know, did we all know we were going to be doing our own typing on a computer and I can fly and I can type just as quickly as I think. And somebody that in my background, which really is about communications, that's a skill that I otherwise would have been, it's been such an advantage for me. Um, 
over the years. In, in terms of the bigger question about how do I, I can't say I really said, okay, here's my path, you know, five years, five years, and people talk about doing that. Um, I think I just focused on being very good at what I did, doing the best job I could, thinking a little bit and thinking in terms of the next job necessarily, you know, um, and feeling, uh, th thinking about being ready for that and what I needed to, to be, do to be ready for that. Looking at those people, though, too, and, and saying to myself, I could do that. Um, and having, having enough confidence to feel like that, not necessarily the support by other people in the workplace, by the way, but enough confidence in myself to say, I think I could do that. Um, and then just various opportunities kind of arose over time. But, you know, at one point I worked for a man who uh, saw so much value in me being his executive assistant that he was loath to do anything to help me get ahead. And I had to almost literally kick and scream um, to be recognized for what I was actually contributing versus what I was getting credit for contributing. Um, and he did a couple of little things to basically to shut me up, but it was still not what I thought I deserved. And then, um, and by the way, one of the reasons why was I was, you know, an attractive young girl. He was very concerned that people are going to think he was moving me ahead because there was something between us. Isn't that ridiculous and kind of disgusting, right? Yes. I've had that happen. I'm telling you, our lives are like, so. there's so many yeah, parallels really, in our lives. It's, it's like, really, what I used to want to say was, really, that's what you think? Because, you know, this is about you and your fantasies, not about the reality right. of what's happening here. But anyway, um, <laughs> he ended up getting replaced by a woman who promoted me in like two months. She re she saw what I was doing, and she she was the first woman in this position, and she knew she needed me. She she too was going through the same kind of thing. How am I going to be as good as they think I I am? Um, and so she needed me, and she promoted me, and I'll always be grateful uh, grateful to her for that. Um, and that kind of set me on the next stage of things, and the next stage of things. And now I work for a woman who is incredibly capable, incredibly powerful, um, I think, like to think of as, as, as in some ways a friend, um, in some ways a mentor, maybe not that she thought officially she was doing that, but certainly I've learned a lot from working, working with her. So if a young woman were to say to you, I want to get ahead, mm -hmm. um, should I be noisy or should I be quiet? Oh, definitely don't be quiet. But if you're going to be noisy, make sure you have something to be noisy about. Um, I've met a lot of young women, and men for that matter, in my career who have wanted to get ahead strictly on the and, and st expected to strictly because they wanted to. Um, things wouldn't, you know, weren't happening fast enough for them. And my advice was always, you don't understand. You have to be so good at what you do that there's a realization that you could do more by other people. You have to overperform for people to say, okay, I can see the potential in this person. And that takes hard work. And there are a lot of people that that's how they got ahead. So for somebody to get ahead because they kick and scream, but they're not basing it on hard work, you're not doing it yourself any favors. You could end up in an emperor has no clothes situation, and that doesn't do you any do you any favors? Right. I 
Once again, I agree with you 100%. Not only like, do we have parallel lives, but we think the same. I had one young woman who worked for me years ago, and she said, I'd like you to be my mentor in this very kind of aggressive way. And she was maybe working for me for six weeks at that time. And I said, okay, you know, whatever. And she was all aggressive about coming into my office at this time and sitting down and asking me all these questions. And it was it was like this strange dynamic where she she acted like she she had this coming. There was just such a turnoff for me. And but be, beyond that was, you know, I had to say to her one day, you need to get better at what you're already doing. You've only been working for me for six months. We have a lot of work to do here for you to get to the point where. You're getting what you think you deserve. You know what you think you deserve. That's not reality. You know we'd all love to get ahead quickly and make more money. Whatever you have to pay your dues. Right. My friend Chrissy Greer, who is a professor at Fordham, tells a story that her her students will do C work and they get a C grade, and then they come to her and they're like, "But I need an A," and she's like, "Well, then do A work." You know, right. do A graded work. I mean, don't turn in C work and think you're going to get an A. Right. And she says she notices it, you know, more and more mm-hmm. that there is that attitude of, I deserve an A. Right. But I don't need to do the work. I don't work know if for it's it. the the immediate gratification culture that we have, or, or or exactly what it is. But I notice a lot of that. I will say, however, recently I've, I get a lot of requests either from other com- executives in the company or even directly, for me to talk to people. Lots of times it's a young woman who loves the arts and wants to talk to me about my job. Um, and Or someone's daughter, whatever. I probably do this three or four times a month. Um, and I have to say, I've, I've been very impressed by a lot of these young people that have come in front of me. I, I think they, they have really good basic foundations and they have really good attitudes. Um, so... That's encouraging because outside of that, I also see a lot of things that are kind of distressing. Yes, and it goes both ways. There's never one like right. one like you can't lump everyone together and say this is a generation that does X, Y, Z. Exactly. But it's just calling those out in a helpful way to be able to say if you want to get ahead, mm-hmm. do what you need to do to get ahead. Right. Speak up, speak out, but do your part in that. Don't expect it yeah. just to happen. It's not just about kicking and screaming. It's about really having a lot of work and, and, and legitimacy, credibility under your belt when you do it. So I want to circle back in a couple of minutes about what you do, because I think it's great, the arts, a bank, women, um, but we're going to take, we're going to go one direction here and we're going to do, I'm done with that. Oh, okay. Okay. So we'll talk about things we're done with and then we're going to come back and talk about what you do. So I'll kick it off with something I'm done with. And we were talking about this earlier, just a little, but I'm done with living a life without a purple couch. Mm-hmm. And I will explain that. And I may never have, and let me say a purple velvet couch, because that gives a, even a bigger visual. And I may never have a purple velvet couch, because I'm not sure I want to live with a purple velvet couch. But it's that visual of the brightness, the mm-hmm. hippie in me. Mm-hmm. So when I think about what would, and maybe it's a an apartment for a day. I'm not sure I want to live in it forever, but what would that ultimate place look like? It's very colorful and it's purple and there are beads and there are Buddhas. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that inner hippie in me. So when I think about the purple couch that I don't live with, there's a bigger message in that. I want the inner hippie in me Uh to be able to surface. And I love my apartment. My apartment's very neutral colored as, as we've talked about many times on the show. Um, And I love it. But so it's not so much about my furniture. It's more about me. It's yeah. like, 
I'm, I don't allow that girl with the purple couch to show up because I play it safe. Mm-hmm. Because what if I get tired of the purple couch? Right. Well, th- I'm here to tell you after years and years of neutral colors, I'm kind of tired of that. <laughs> well, we get tired of everything. Right. Ultimately, unfortunately, um, it just is the way it is. You can be madly in love with something, whether it's clothes or anything like that. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you're looking at it going, what was I thinking? Or I'm just sick to, sick of this. Right. right. So deep down, is that I want the hippie Denise to be able to start surfacing. Mm-hmm. And however that surface, if I get a purple couch, I'll let y'all know. I'm not planning on a purple, but who knows? Yeah, right, right. No, um, what are you doing? I with? think it's, I think it's, it's, it's good to constantly be trying to realize who you really are. You know, who is your authentic self is kind of how I look and at it. And it changes. It does change. It does change. But I'm mean, not your authentic no, self, that's, but that's how the whole you story show of it. death of a salesman, right? Yes. Uh, the play. Yes. Um, where you know. I think of the Dustin Hoffman performance that was on television. It was just so outrageously good. And, um, you know, that's what happens to him. He's running around being a salesman. He's trying to make money for his family. He's trying to be somebody who's not. His family's totally dysfunctional. He's unhappy. He's having affairs and all of this crazy stuff. When he goes home, he works on the back porch. He builds the back porch with his hands. Um, and that's really who he is. And that's when he's the happiest and the most authentic person he is. And I think all of us have to try to try to make that journey and stop forgetting about that, that image person uh, and, and the person that we really want to want to be and get comfortable with who that person is. Right. So mine is kind of plays off of yours, which is I'm done with really worrying too terribly much about what people think of me. Hallelujah. Yeah. Um, I know some people are going to like me. I know some people are going to not. I know some people don't like me and then they get to know me and then they get surprised that they like me. Um, you know, you can't please everybody. You really have to please yourself and, and worry about those closest to you that you love and try to be a good person and, and, and treat people fairly and, and well. And um, But all the time, all the energy, all the angst that I spent over the years in my life what did I say that for? What did I do? What should I wear? You know, all of that. It's just so nice to be to, to be free of that. It's like shackles have come off. I'd like to be able to say I'm, I'm, I'm done with dieting as well. I'm not quite there yet. I can't wait to be the Italian auntie with the grand, you know, the great nieces or whatever. And, and you know, I get a little chubby, but I'm cooking the food I like. I mean, that's, that's me, right? Right. The, the the me that has the Art Deco apartment in New York and all of that other stuff, that's I suppose that's part of me. But the time when I feel the most me is when I'm making a gravy in my apartment and I'm listening to Pavarotti on the stereo. And I'm pouring myself a glass of wine because I'm deglazing the pan, but oh, by the way, I'm just going to have a little <laughs> glass of that while I'm doing that. And uh, it takes me back to my childhood. It takes me back to my mother frying meatballs and saying, do you want one? And smashing it down to cook it through and giving it to me. I do that every single time I have. And, and that's me. And then, you know, having friends and family over and feeding them. That's what I really love to do. So you want to be done with dieting. I want to be done with dieting. But... What's the butt there? I'm kind of still in the mix a little bit too much to divorce my mind from my body just yet. <laughs> I think that's great because I think that's, that's really honest and you're not alone. Yeah, I'm still, that's, you know, I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm still in the mix professionally and, 
as a, as, as a single woman and so forth and so on. It's not to say, by the way, if I find, you know, if, if I end up in a, in a marriage, I'm going to blow up. That's right. not my intention. <laughs> okay, so, so, oh, you guys okay. listening, don't yeah, worry exactly. about that. <laughs> don't worry about that. Um, no, because I've always loved fashion. I want to feel good. I want to grow old gracefully, and I want to feel good as I grow old. So it's a constant struggle. But I would like to get to the point where I say, you know what? If I have the extra 15 pounds on me, the world's not going to end. Right. As long as you're healthy. I mean, I really look at that. Right. As long as exactly. your weight doesn't become a health issue, it's right. you should exactly. be whatever makes you happy. Right. Um, but you're talking about cooking. We've talked about that because it's a common theme that keeps coming up. And I'm going to do some cooking with women, and and I've been doing more salon dinners. I'll, now that we know each other, I'll invite you over. Of uh, when I cook, I mean, I could easily order out. I could easily have a chef come in, and I do it for nine women. And now I'm going to start having whoever somebody cooking with me, just to make it easier mm-hmm. for me, so I can socialize more. But I, there are a couple of things that go on when you're cooking and you're talking, and different mm-hmm. conversations come up. You're making things with your energy, with your love in right. them. Versus always ordering out right. and which we do in New York that you know the joke that the your ovens used for storage when you live in New right. York. Right, I once moved into a place in New York where the oven still had it had never been used and person lived there for ten years yeah. it still had the stuff taped to it so it wasn't like they just put the manuals in there it was still <laughs> taped to the oven. <laughs> I've never had that problem. Right. I uh, yeah I've used my stuff a lot but. Me too, but I think we're missing those mentor, those natural mentoring moments in mm-hmm. life. Like you were talking about your mom and the meatballs. And I, when I was growing up, my we used to knead the dough mm-hmm. to make bread. And it was those moments where you would hear your mom talk about, we can't pay the electricity bill. We don't have enough for this. We right. need to do that. You know, we're going all, we're all going to see grandma on Sunday. Right. Whatever it was, then you could say, but, you know, is Uncle John going to be there? Because the last time we were there, he shot Uncle Bosco. And <laughs> <laughs> We didn't shoot him, but he pulled his gun. <laughs> and then you would get into the conversation about how that happened. Right, exactly. So and we're missing that, I think. Yeah. You know, we're missing those moments in life. Well, I have to say I had a recent experience that I loved. So um, I use a lot of my mother's recipes. And when my family would come over, including my nieces, I'd make stuff they like. Homemade raviolis for my grown-up uh, niece. And... Um, noodle pasta because god forbid they eat the same thing for the 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 younger one um but i would make struffoli and i would make these chocolate fried raviolis my mother used to make with powdered sugar on them anyway the 18 year old who's got a terrible sweet tooth really just loses her mind over this stuff and i love that i'm making my mother's recipes and she's doing it anyway last holiday season she asked me for the recipes and she sent me pictures of her effort at both of them. And it was just so That's great. That's wonderful. You know? And she said, call me Auntie Rena. She had made the, the struffoli and she had made the fried ravioli. At the time, she was 17 years old. I was very proud of her. But I was just so thrilled to see the continuity thing and the fact that she cared about it. Right. No, that's know? wonderful. And I think we're, we're really losing those moments of yeah. just being together so one of the questions, we're going to do takeaways now, and I crowdsource questions from our listeners, and that's why I held off on the part about what you do, because one of the questions was, your job sounds so cool, mm-hmm. and it does sound really cool, because you have the arts, but you're working at a major company, a mm-hmm. major corporation, and you're empowering women. Right. So give us like a glimpse into what you do. Well, um, so... 
the listeners probably know, for instance, you will go to a museum and you'll see that such and such company is sponsoring it. Um, so I oversee all of those kinds of sponsorships, but it's a much bigger program than, than just that. Um, the program is designed, you know, we're a financial institution. Financial institutions are supposed to lend money and create economic growth. Okay. There are a lot of ways to do that. Lending is one. Philanthropy is another. So all of the work that we do with arts institutions is, is nonprofit arts institutions. Um, they are the ones that make a community worth living in. They are the ones that teach the young people. They are the ones that, uh, you know, people, uh, uh, tourists come to see and then create more economic activity around them because they're going to the restaurants and they're going shopping and so forth and so on. So, um, we're very fortunate in this country to have uh, tremendous um, arts institutions all over the place, but they struggle with funding. Um, it's not as badly in this country as in others. In others, they depend so much on the government that when the government pulls back, they really hurt. In this country, we have such a tremendous tradition of philanthropy that they can actually have fairly uh, balanced revenue streams, I guess is how I describe it. But so what I do is... Um, I try to create employee satisfaction. I try to uh, create um, opportunities for these museums to do what they do best. I Yes, I am interested in the company having a little bit of a halo because of those partnerships. I like to say that nobody loses. There's nobody left holding the bag. I'm not telling these museums, you need to hang this and don't use this picture. I let them do what they do best. We, um, so we sponsor probably 10 to 12 exhibitions, major ones around the, uh, around the uh, world every year. We have major sponsorships. We're a sponsor of Alvin Ailey. We help them travel around the world. We're a sponsor of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. We help them travel around the world. I think the arts are a form of cultural diplomacy, um, and we try to, to further that. We also take our own art collection, um, which has come to us from all these banks that have consolidated over the years. And we actually put together exhibitions that museums can borrow from us free of charge. So we're the only company that does this. We lend about 10 shows per year. Um, so we have a show on a Wyeth collection opening up in Portland um, in the next week or so, as an example. We had a, sh a show on Warhol from our collection in Johannesburg that was tremendously successful. Um, so that's unique, the way we do that. Then we have something called the Art Conservation Project. Um, we give funding to uh, museums around the world to conserve important pieces of art. Um, some of those have included things that have been looted or otherwise damaged in the Middle East um, and through all of those conflicts that are happening. Um, but we've done 100 projects in 30 countries so far in, that, in, that, uh, in the conservation area. I love this because I think, especially for young women who are listening and thinking about, I love art. You know, you don't mm -hmm. usually think, oh, I love art. Let me go work at a bank. Right? You don't think that. And actually, I get that question a lot from young people say, I love art. Can I come and talk to you? Either right. they work in another part of the company or they're someone's niece or what have you. And the reality is my background is marketing and communications, but my passion is art. So I've been able to pull these two things together. I understand art. I'm not as knowledgeable about it as um, as a curator would be necessarily, but I, I'm you know I know enough. 
Um, and that, by the way, I owe to my parents. Um, they sent me to Italy at 14 years old, and I was hooked after that. Yes, loving the arts is important, and making good things happen uh, for communities and the arts institutions is important. But I also need to be remain tethered to the earth and remember that this company is helping make this possible, and I need to make it work for the company as well. That's where the business skill comes in. It's not for just sure. about what you love to do. Right. Which I, which I think we're missing sometimes mm-hmm. when we're in, in the 25, 30 year olds trying, because we keep saying, do what you love, do what you love, do what you love. Right. Right. So we're like constantly saying, just do what you love. Right. But there is that reality that comes into play. So Absolutely. do what you love, but you need to make a living doing what you love you unless you're a trust fund a kid and you don't and care. And if you work for a company, that company needs to make money. And it yes. doesn't necessarily mean it's happening at someone else's expense. Um, this is why I say with the art program, everybody wins. Um, I worked in London for a while and, uh, you know, over there, as I say, the government spends more on the arts than the private sector does. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a faction of people there that believe that private concerns should have nothing whatsoever to do with the arts. Um, and so they depend entirely on the government. And I'm scratching my head saying, so the government thinks does things better than the private sector? When did, yes. we, when did we get to that point? Um, you know, I think a private public partnership is really the best way, the best way to go. Um, but, you know, I do have people, this is how I put it. There are people in the company that make money. They go out and they work with businesses and they, you know, do loans and, and other financial things and they make money. I spend money. I spend the money that they make. So I had better make this worthwhile for everybody involved. There's altruism in it, don't get me wrong, but it's altruism that's kind of undergirded by practical necessity. So that leads to the next question we have from our listeners, which is, what would you tell your 25-year-old self? I used to say to my father, who, you know, uh, used to say to me, how do you think you got where you got? You know, your mother and I didn't stay in this direction. You know, you didn't go to college right out of high school. You know, how did this, what up? So, you know, it's a combination of things. That's what life is. It's a combination of luck. It's a combination of, um, you know, uh, what you're brought up with. It's a combination of what you inherently have. Uh, it's a combination of the situations you find yourself in. Um, but one of the things I said to him, I said, you know, you had a lot more to do with this than you think. And he says, well, what do you mean? And I said, you instilled confidence in me. You gave me my mojo. And that's, you know... Maybe in some ways it's not been a great thing because I've maybe been a little bit too rebellious or whatever in some ways. God knows that's why they wanted me to go to parochial high school. <laughs> but um, so you weren't like academic you know, it's a probation. Combination of things, and so I I would say um, don't let don't let the B blank 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 D S get you down. <laughs> that's I guess what I would say. You know, and this kind of goes back to I care less about what people think of me. Yes, you should care what people think of you in the respect that you want them to, uh, uh, particularly those you love, to, to, you know, to feel like they can depend on you and all of that kind of stuff. You want to be a dependable, loving person. Um, in work, you want people to think of you as competent, certainly, and so forth and so on. But, you know, understand where people are coming from and, 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 don't don't let it don't let it define you. Look in the mirror and figure out who you are. 
and we hear this so often that it's that lack of self-confidence mm-hmm. what, that really get women and men in the positions you don't want to be in in life, right? right. Because you, when you start doubting yourself, when you don't feel like you're good enough, when you give away your power, right. that's when you end up in the bad places in life, personally and professionally. Well, you that, feel like a victim when you do that. Yes. And that's just not good for anybody's psyche. Um, I think often about two things. One is a study that was done, I read about this in the New York Times science section, and it was about the fact that people, they did a survey, don't ask me what the methodology was, but they came up with the conclusion that people who are incompetent don't know that they are, because they're incompetent, okay? (laughs) And people who are competent question themselves because they're competent. So those people are looking outward, thinking about things, being thoughtful and so forth, and they doubt themselves, the competent people. The incompetent people have blinders on, okay? So just keep that in mind, (laughs) okay? When you're in a workplace or you're in an environment where somebody's like, you know, full of all of this confidence and so forth, you know, look under the covers a little bit and see what's there. That's one thing I think of. I also think of a business week survey of like the fortune 100 ceos i read about this years ago and it was anonymous and uh business week asked them all these different questions about their leadership and their careers or whatever one of the big big findings was these ceos said and again because it was anonymous what am i going to do when they find out i'm not as good as they think i am the imposter syndrome in a different way the imposter syndrome so it afflicts everyone. Know that it afflicts everyone. This gets back to the Tupperware man. Right. It afflicts everybody. The Tupperware man peeing, in the, the man peeing in the Tupperware. Right. We all have self-doubt. Make it work for you. If you have self-doubt, it shows that you're competent. I just love that. Whenever someone says to me, you know, we're, why are we so sane? And I say to them all the time, you know what scares me when you say that? It's the people in the insane asylum do they really know that they're insane? I mean, are like, we really crazy, <laughs> but we're walking right. around thinking we're normal. Right. Well, I don't think anybody's normal. I think right. everybody's a little crazy. Right. I think it's, that's the whole human experience, civilization and its discontents. If you've ever read that by Freud, I mean, we're designed to, to uh, life is designed to drive us all crazy. But, um, yeah, I think I think you have to realize that everybody's human. And everybody has has uh, insecurities, uh, foibles, um, etc. They're no better than you necessarily. Uh, they're no better than you absolutely. Um, you bring something different to the table. I would say this too, from a career perspective. I have to say, because I've been in the workplace for a long time. Particularly, I notice this in my con- company. The, the the embracing of diversity of people with that look different, much less act different, has come such a long way. Um, you know, I wore big hair. I was a disco queen. I had big hair and probably too long nails and too much makeup and so forth. And people were kind of you were know, you at the bank then? Yeah, I was at the Federal Reserve of oh all my places. God. You know, I mean, I, it was. I remember walking down the, down this long hallway into this area. This is when I started out as a secretary, and there there were all these older women who had on a lot of beige, 
and you know in their careers told me about you know they used to wear gloves to work they had to wear white gloves to work and all this they were still there for a million years later i come walking down i've got on this outrageous burgundy velvet norman kamali outfit with the shoulders you know joan crawford watch out (laughs) and the makeup on my hair and some (laughs) elaborate kind of a thing and everybody looked at me and they assumed that i was an idiot that there was no there there, that this was a flamboyant person who, you know, or whatever, person of a particular class or whatever who doesn't get it and, you know, is not is, is going to fail, you know, in some way. And, and, and she, there can't be much going on with this woman because she looks this way. Wrong. Right. I, lo- I just love this story. I could just talk with you forever, which we will continue. For the podcast, we have to say goodbye for now to the podcast. Yeah, sure. But is there a place where people can go and find out more about your programs that you're working on with Bank of America and the Empowering Women? I know you're working with Vital Voices, yes. who I love. At least Nelson, uh, we've a shout several out programs too. with women, uh, mentoring uh, women, training women, providing capital to women. We have a partnership with Tory Burch, um, providing capital to women entrepreneurs. There's a, a lot of things going on. The good news is the websites are easy to find, www.bankofamerica.com slash arts or bankofamerica.com slash women. That's easy. And Yeah, so um, both of those give you a very good sense of, of what we're doing at, at, at the bank. Thank you so, so much. I can't tell you how meaningful. And I just love how thoughtful your your answer is. Like, I wish everyone could see you as you're answering and you're thinking. It's not like you're just not, you're not on remote control. And it's like, well, here's my answer. You're so thoughtful about it. So thank you, because those are the stories that are going to help us all be better people and change our lives. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been real. It's been fun. <laughs> it has been fun, as we said. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to see a picture of that afro. Uh. Oh, God. It was brutal. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us today. And to get Mentoring Moments the moment it's live every Wednesday, remember to download new episodes on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. And make sure to rate, review, and share. So here are some of the highlights that are on the top of my mind from today's conversation. If you're going to be noisy... Make sure you have something to be noisy about. And then there's this one. Let's stop playing it safe. Let's take those calculated risks. Even just take some risks, but calculated, let's start there even. And don't let other people define you. Look in the mirror and figure out who you really are. Who knows? You may see a disco queen. So talk to me. You can always find me on Twitter at Denise Ristari. And until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And we're the hosts of The Limit Does Not Exist, a podcast for human Venn diagrams. That's right. We talk to people with intersecting interests in the arts, STEM, entrepreneurship, and so much more. The easiest way to explain science to non-scientists is to use art. I worry that we lose a lot of creative engineers because our engineering curriculum is not creative. Education should be about empowering people to become better thinkers, good problem solvers, create 
creative inventors and ethical caring citizens. Download new episodes of The Limit Does Not Exist every Monday on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. Hi, I'm Gina from the Novato Safeway. With the April 15th tax deadline around the corner, we thought you could use a break. So come in and buy any four items and save 15% all week long. It's a lot easier than doing your taxes. Pick up Oscar Mayer Lunchables for just 97 cents each, Capri Sun for $1.95, and Vitamin Water, 20 ounce for only 84 cents. This is Gina from the Novato Safeway, and we'll see you soon. Prices vary in cities in which sugary beverage tax applies. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.